These are people who pull back in their growth. And we have people like that today. They begin to grow. They get excited about the Lord. And then they begin to get some kickback. You mean you think homosexuality is a sin? You think transgenderism is not true? What's your problem? Of course, they've convinced the American public that this is not a moral issue, but a minority status issue. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a three-part mini-series entitled Growing Up in Christ, in which Dr. Brogy from the Book of Hebrews shows how believers are called to grow in their relationship with Christ. Yesterday, we cracked the book on the second message entitled A Warning Against Not Growing. Dr. Brogy did an overview of the first message from Hebrews chapter 5, and today we move into the next chapter that includes one of the most misunderstood passages in the entire Bible. Now, in the first three verses of chapter 6, let's think together about the solution to growing, the solution to not growing. What is the solution to not growing? So God doesn't leave them hanging here. He provides the solution to their problem, and he exhorts them on three levels and by application, all of us. First, to grow, we must be willing to pursue maturity. We must be willing to pursue maturity. Now, you will notice the very first word of chapter 6 is the word therefore. So you know right off this is connected to what has previously been said. You always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And contextually, it goes back to what we just studied in chapter 5. Who is he addressing in chapter 5, the lost or the saved? He's writing to saved people, and that's important. And so look carefully at his counsel here in verse 1. There are three phases that you want to think about. Therefore, leaving the elementary principles about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So he first urges them to leave the elementary principles and to press on to maturity. You see that word maturity? It's, it's the Greek word teleos. It means full grown. It means mature. And it was an excellent translation in the 17th century when the King James rendered it perfection because it had a different nuance in that day. But he is not saying that anyone in this life can be sinlessly perfect. That will not happen until you are in your glorified body and God has completed your salvation. But nonetheless, he is speaking about a believer growing up and changing And you will notice that the writer of the Hebrews includes himself in that, let us. So unless you think that this book is being written by an unbeliever, then you might conclude that he's reading, he's he's addressing unbelievers, but he's not. Let us, himself included. He's addressing his brothers and sisters in Christ. And let me remind you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are not growing, you're backsliding. God doesn't make you like a fence post stuck in the ground. He's made you like a tree that is planted, that is to grow and develop and to flourish. And if you're not growing, you're you're dying. You can't just stay neutral. And so he says, let us go on to maturity. And it's an imperative. It's a command. It's not an option for the obedient Christian. And, And it has a sense, the tense that's used, continue, keep on going and progressing into maturity. 
Now notice the second phrase here in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So again, who the let us is, I just mentioned it, is critical to interpreting the entire section of Scripture. The us is not referring to the unsaved, but to those who are saved. He's He's addressing Christians to press on. And so I mentioned that some take this as a warning to the lost. Well, number one, the lost aren't going to be pouring over Hebrews chapter 6. He's writing to believers, and it's a very serious warning. And again, to come to another conclusion is really to ignore the context, not to mention the 13 let us exhortations found in Hebrews. That would be a great study in and of itself this week. Let us, together, both individually and corporately, press on to maturity. When our children were little babies, we did everything for them. But as they began to grow, they began to help us out. That's the way God designed the family. And they'd help, you know, feed the one that was younger than they. And when you begin to grow up, you begin to help other members of the family. And you should care about that. Why? Because we're members one of another, Paul will say. And a mark that you are maturing is that you're beginning to help other people. And if we're ever to grow up, we have to pursue maturity. But there's a third phrase here, again in verse 1, therefore leaving the elementary teaching. The elementary teaching. We saw last time that that was a phrase that was actually used in language construction, what we might call the letters of the alphabet. Leave the ABCs. And move on about the Messiah. Let us press on to maturity, not laying a foundation again. So to have reviewed the fundamentals of the faith all over again would have just left them right where they were, babies. He wants to give them new information, but they can't really receive it in one sense. They need to press on. How do they press on? They obey what they know. You apply what God shows you. So he doesn't want them to keep spinning their wheels. He wants us to move on. And let me just say parenthetically here, it's possible that you are a brand new Christian and you're listening today, but you are not unhealthy. You are a healthy believer because you're new. You have new life. You have a new direction. You have new aspirations to follow after the things of God because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. But you're not mature because you haven't had enough time. It takes time to grow. You need food, you need exercise, and you need time. Those are the three biblical components in the New Testament for maturity. Uh, We've got children over in the fellowship hall, and to our covert listeners online, I know our nurseries are not open, but we have an old 800-seat auditorium over there, and it's all spaced out, and it's a little more relaxed if you're a little uptight about your child making noise, and you can participate with us. But those children over there are healthy, but they're children. And I should say parenthetically while we're on it, there are churches all across America who are convincing us as parents that they are doing us a favor and that they offer children's church and then junior church, middle school church, high school church, where the children don't worship with their parents. That is an unbiblical position to hold into practice. If they are old enough to hear and understand Paul's explanation in Ephesians 6 where he addresses the fathers, and then he says, children, obey your parents, 
For this is right. It's the first commandment with a promise. If they're old enough to soak that in, then they're old enough to be in the worship service. Now, you can try to train them when they're 12 or 13, and in this day, you will probably have lost them. Or you can start when they're five years old, and if they are old enough to memorize their name, address, and phone number, typically they are old enough to be in the worship service. But with that parenthetically said, it's possible for you to be a brand new Christian, but you're healthy. And we have people like that. And God typically in any given year entrusts a few hundred new believers to us that we are to nurture and help and care. But it takes time to grow. For by this time, you ought to have been teachers, but you have need for someone to teach you. But then there are people who come week after week after week, and they gorge themselves in Scripture, and they're no more mature than they were a year ago. And that's not good. So he starts with this positive advice, this positive instruction to pursue maturity, but then he gives some negative counsel. To grow, you must be willing to forsake immaturity. You must be willing to forsake immaturity. Now, let's read about this foundation that they were not to lay all over again at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2 with the insertion of this little word, not. The writer gives us six Old Testament practices that were to be left behind by these Jewish Christians so they could press on to maturity. Six truths that may be a little foreign to you and I, but these people are from the Jewish faith. These are Hebrews. These are, you, you don't ever give up your Jewishness when you become a follower of Jesus, of Yeshua. You're still a Jew. And so these were Jewish Christians who had come out of that faith, and that doesn't surprise us because the Scripture says salvation is from the Jews. And so some of these as you read the whole letter, had gone back and practiced some of the externals of Judaism. You know, we often quote that verse, not to forsake our assembling together. You know why they were forsaking their assembling together? Because to gather with other born-again Jews meant persecution, meant to have your business forsaken by your other Jewish customers. It meant to sometimes experience physical persecution, We talk about today, well, why didn't we show up? I felt like sleeping in. No, the reason they were forsaking their assembling was because of persecution. And some of them, wanting to appear more Jewish, went back to some of the external Jewish practices to kind of tone the persecution down. Follow along in your Bibles. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, notice on this list, first he mentions repentance from dead works. He's referring to the works of the Mosaic law. Those works, all that sacrificial system and all the various offerings that they made were just symbols. They were symbols of the substance. They were shadows of Christ. And so through the preaching of the gospel, when they heard the plan of salvation, they realized those things could never save them. These were just baby things. Then he mentions repentance from faith and faith toward God. They made a response to the preaching of the gospel. They exercised faith in what God had promised concerning the Messiah. So again, to go back to the temple worship, 
was to go back to a foundational issue that they needed to move past. Notice in addition, instructions about washings. Uh, The King James uniquely writes, doctrines of baptisms. And that might be a little confusing, though it's technically right. It's the word baptizo, but it's in the plural. It's not baptism, but baptisms. And so most English translations render it washings. And really, that's what's in view in light of the rest of Scripture. He's not talking about believer's baptism, credo baptism. He's talking about washings of the Old Testament, ceremonial washings. And they were required. You had to wash your clothes a certain way. You had to wash your utensils a certain way. You had to wash your hands a certain way. A woman after childbirth, after a menstrual cycle, all these different things. For men as well, you had to be cleansed. Some of you have been with me to Israel, and you know that this is the main entrance into the temple. There were a number of entrances you could approach the temple mount where you worship God, but these are the southern steps. This is the main entrance, and I think you can see it in this picture. There are different size steps. You're looking at some of the original steps, and some are just so wide, and some are 15 inches wide. And part of that is as you walked up and you came to a big step, it caused you to pause, and most Jews read the songs or the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 to 134. And that would be a great exercise for you this afternoon just to read even the first verse of Psalm 120 to 134. And you could see how a Jew is preparing himself to go meet God in the temple and to worship him. But before they walked up the steps, they came to these things called mikvahs. It's like a big baptismal tub. Here's another one. And here's even another one. And these are all right at the base of the southern steps. They have found 48 of them, and they're still finding them. So Pentecost took place in the southern steps. They came out of the upper room, and they poured out onto the southern steps, and Peter preached the gospel. And all these people, 3,000 were saved, and, and the infant baptizers say, well, how could they have baptized anyone by immersion? There's no river in Jerusalem. These mikvahs. They say that there's over 100 original for certain. And so they baptize over 3,000 people. It would be more like this up here that we baptize in most Sundays when God gives us new believers or people who've never had believers baptism. And what did that washing do? It shouted your need for cleansing, that you're a sinner and you just can't flippantly come into the presence of God. You need cleansing And of course, that's a baby thing. That's a symbol. We now, as believers in Jesus, have been given a robe of righteousness. We have been declared with the righteousness of Christ, and so he calls us saints by calling. He goes on, and he uh, speaks of the laying on of hands. And again, that was a ritual when a man brought an offering to God, and he would lay his hands on the animal's head to signify that his sin, so to speak, needed to be passed to his substitute. But Jesus accomplished that. Then fifth, he mentions the resurrection of the dead, and sixth, eternal judgment. Both taught in the Old Testament scriptures. Some of the earliest teachings a believer would hear when the gospel was preached, but the fact that Messiah would rise from the dead, that his body would not undergo decay, that every child of God would someday rise from the dead, and that there would be a resurrection of the just and the unjust, as Daniel affirms in other passages. That's Old Testament. 
They should have known that. He wanted them to go further and deeper in their faith. And so they needed to move on from the picture to the reality, from the shadow and into the substance. And because Christianity did grow out of Judaism, it was a subtle way in which you could avoid persecution. But these were the elementary principles. They were still stuck in the vestibule of Judaism, and they needed to progress. Now, he's not talking about people like in the parable of the sower, where Jesus speaks of the man on rocky soil. He, he receives the word with joy. He believes for a while, not in, but just here, not here, in the mind, not in the heart, and then he falls away. He's not talking about that kind of person. These are not people who out and out rejected Jesus. These are people who pulled back in their growth, and we have people like that today. They begin to grow. They get excited about the Lord, and then they begin to get some kickback. You mean you think homosexuality is a sin? You think transgenderism is not true? What's your problem? Of course, they've convinced the American public that this is not a moral issue, but a minority status issue. That's exactly what those two men from Harvard in the 1980s, that was their goal, and they achieved it. I preached a sermon 15 years ago on those two guys, and now we've seen they have achieved it. And you kick back against that? Whoa, what's your problem? What do you mean you don't want to go out and get wasted with us, Marine? We're all going out to drink. Come on with us. You mean you don't want to go out? I mean, we're deployed. We're thousands of miles away. We can cheat on our wives. That's the culture, not just for deployed people, but for people who live here. And you speak against that? I see Christians liking on Facebook people who are living in sin and having illegitimate children. Look, I love the baby, but we don't like things that God calls evil. Think, where's your head? What are you thinking? And so to be safe, we just be quiet. We seal the lips. We don't want our family and friends to be bothered by us. So there's the problem. There's the solution. Now there's the warning. The warning for not growing. Verse 3 is a rather sobering verse. Here the writer says, and this we will do if God permits. What does he mean, this we will do? What exactly is the this? It goes back to the nearest antecedent in verse 1, to the pressing on of maturity. We shall press on to maturity if God permits. That's our goal, if God permits. Verse 3 is really the key to understanding what follows. But what's interesting, sadly, in a lot of the commentaries, they just skip verse 3, and yet it's critical. And if, by the way, means if here. It's a conditional thing. If God permits, why in the world would you say that God would not permit us to go on to maturity? Isn't that what God wants for us? Yes, it is. But there are times when God will not permit it. We will press on to maturity if God permits it, because maybe he will and maybe he won't. We'll see why in just a moment. So the answer to this warning really comes in three dimensions. First, the warning involves a full enlightenment. The warning involves a full enlightenment. Again, I don't believe for a moment that the writer is talking to the lost about salvation, but he's speaking to the saved about maturity. 
And he uses here five descriptions that help us to understand that these are saved people. Now, pay close attention because we're entering into the hardest section. So let me first give kind of an overview, and then we'll go back and we'll look at the finer points. So starting here in verse 4, we have a case in point when God will not allow someone to move on to maturity. Notice, by the way, you need to be able to explain this passage of Scripture. If you get involved in helping people, it's not a matter of if, it's when are they going to ask you this question about Hebrews 6. But apart from that, we all need this for ourselves because this is a severe, sobering warning. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. See, God doesn't permit it in this case. Why And why not? Since, here's the reason, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So to help us to understand what this person is like, he gives a positive and then a negative illustration. First, the positive illustration is found here in verse 7. And he describes uh, the life that is able to press on to maturity. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives the bless- a blessing from God. And then in verse 8, he describes by illustration the life that is not permitted to press on to maturity. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now, that's the flow. So let's look at the details. First in verse 4. From the case of those who have once been enlightened. You see that word enlightened? It's, I put the Greek in each case. You don't have to read it, but you can see it's the same word. Photizo. And it's used by the writer of the Hebrews and other places in the New Testament of someone who's born again. And so, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul uses the word. I read this in the pastoral prayer this morning. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He's addressing saved people, the church at Ephesus, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The unsaved people of this world are spoken of as being in darkness, but the saved is those who are enlightened and can be continued to be illuminated as they grow. The lost, they're blinded by the God of this world, but the saved who have been regenerated, they are able to spiritually appraise all things. And by the way, the writer to the Hebrews, he's consistent. He uses in Hebrews 10.32, This same word of a believer. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. So for those who say that this passage refers to an unbeliever, that the enlightened are people who have, you know, had an experience with the Spirit of God but not been converted, they've not done their homework. Because in every single instance in the rest of the New Testament, which virtually none of them debate, when the word enlightened is used, it is used in reference to believer. There's a second characteristic here in verse 4. From the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. So in calling them people who have tasted of the heavenly gift, some say, well, this applies to an unbeliever. It can't. 
Again, you let Scripture interpret Scripture. Peter uses the same word to describe a believer. He said in 1 Peter 2, like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk. Here, milk is not being used like the writer of the Hebrews in deference to meat, but about the purity, about the absolute unadulterated truth of Scripture. Like a newborn baby, we are to crave pure spiritual milk, we might say the Bible, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. See the word tasted? It's the same word we just read, tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, again, there are some people who say, well, he's addressing lost people. And they argue, well, they've tasted of the heavenly gift. They just haven't eaten of it. They've had a sample, but not a full meal. But again, they've not carefully done their homework because the writer of the Hebrews himself uses this same word. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, he's describing the Lord Jesus. Listen, but we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste, same word, death for everyone, Giamai. Jesus didn't sample death. He tasted it in full. These Hebrew Christians had tasted of the heavenly gift. These were converted people. Look at the third characteristic in verse 4. Pay attention. If you're bored, it tells me you are a weak baby Christian and ask God to help you. Please ask him to help you. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers, partakers of the Holy Spirit, That's what it says. Now, those who say that, again, this passage refers to the unsaved and it's a warning to them, they say, well, they've been partakers in in the sense that they've been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. They've seen the truth of the gospel, but they haven't been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. No, the word is used of someone who has a full participation in something. For instance, again, by the writer of the Hebrews, and I could illustrate it in many other passages, but why not illustrate it by the writer himself because he's going to be consistent? He uses it to describe the incarnation of Christ. He says in Hebrews 2, 14, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook. Same word, just in verbal form. He partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. The Lord Jesus had a real and full sharing in our humanity. He wasn't part man. He was truly man, truly God, fully man, fully God. And so he's describing a full participation. Notice the fourth characteristic, and have tasted the good word of God. Here again, the word taste, same word in word in verse 4. It speaks of a full experience, not a sampling. Only a believer can fully appreciate the wonder and the goodness of the word of God. An unbeliever is repelled by it. But a believer sees it as the good and perfect will of God for his life. Tomorrow we'll conclude our look at A Warning Against Not Growing, the second in our three-message series entitled Growing Up in Christ. If you'd like to listen to part two of our series, Growing Up in Christ, or if you missed part one, both can be found on the Search the Scriptures app or online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877 877- 
787-747-7478 and request program GIC1 or today's message GIC2. Things are looking up for international travel as cases of the coronavirus are on the decline and vaccinations are on the rise. Consequently, we're planning two trips to Israel in early and mid-October, led by Dr. Brogy. The Bible will literally come to life as we visit so many locations you may have only read about. Join us as we go to Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Getty, the Dead Sea, and the Mount of Beatitudes, just to name a few. Details are online at stsisraeltour.com. We hope you'll join us. Tomorrow, the conclusion of a warning against not growing. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>